Will you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20. We want you to have a Bible to follow along. These brothers have come up front with Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. It's our gift to you. Please feel free to keep that. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20. Thank you, musicians. Again, if you were here last week, I said that uh, we had some shifting around of the instruments because Anthony was gone and so Phil was leading. Instead of playing the fiddle, he was playing the guitar last week. And then today, Phil was playing the guitar, but no, then he's playing the fiddle. And then Anthony was playing the cajon, but then no, he's playing the guitar. I think they're just showing off at this point. (laughs) Next week, they said, I'm going to be playing something. So a lot of versatility in that group. Very thankful for them. Today, we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. And I remind you that they're divided into two groups. One having to do with our relationship with God. The first four commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image to bow down before and worship, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And fourthly, you shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then the last six have to do with our relationships with one another. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Today we'll see the Eighth Commandment. And then next week, you shall not give false testimony. And then finally, you shall not covet. Now, these two tablets of commandments relating to God and those relating to others conform to Jesus' statement that although there are 613 commands and prohibitions in the full law of Moses, the two greatest our love for God and love for neighbor. And in considering the second tablet of the law regarding love for neighbor, the great John Calvin noted the reason that God commands that we do this, namely because everyone that we are called to love is made in the image of God. He said, the Lord enjoins us to do good to all without exception, though the greater part if estimated by our own merit, are most unworthy of it. But Scripture enjoins a most excellent reason when it tells us that we are not to look to what men in themselves deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in all and in which we owe all honor and love. Today we consider the Eighth Commandment found in verse 15 of Exodus 20. You shall not steal. Now, our culture has mastered the art of euphemism and evasion. We use words to make unpleasant things sound better and to avoid the full effect of our actions. Some time ago, I heard about a GM employee who was dismissed from his job for unprofessional conduct. The official offense, according to GM, misappropriation of company property. Now, the Bible word for that is stealing. The guy didn't misappropriate company property. The scoundrel stole. And today we're going to see what that means. So let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for this gathering. We thank you for what we celebrate this day, the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you then that we are here worshiping him who is alive and active in our lives and coming again. So we thank you for the grand privilege of being able to gather and to praise you and now to learn of you from your word. We ask you, Lord, to teach us. Teach us what it means to avoid stealing and thereby teach us to honor one another as ultimately we honor you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the next two commands in the Ten Commandments, today the eighth and next week the ninth, against stealing and next week against lying, they both have to do with the issue of honesty. The command against lying has to do with honesty as it relates to people. Today's command against stealing has to do with honesty as it relates to property. Now, when we think of property, we might first think of real estate or land or a home. But I'm using property in the wider sense of any material possession one owns. And in the first point of the outline that you should have out in front of you, if you don't have that out as yet, it's inserted in your program. I encourage you to take that out. In that first point of the outline, we're reminded first that there is the wrong way to acquire possessions. When God says you shall not steal, this includes the obvious forms of theft. That is just taking something that does not belong to us, but also more indirect and even subtle forms. The 18th century Baptist theologian John Gill defined stealing this way. Stealing is to take away another man's property by force or fraud without the knowledge and against the will of the owner. Now, this definition goes beyond then just direct stealing by force, but also includes indirect forms by fraud. And likewise, in the 16th century Heidelberg Catechism that I mentioned last week, If you weren't here last week, I mentioned that a catechism is just a question and answer format for you to learn truth. And that is not just the liturgical denominations that do that. There are actually Baptist catechisms, Protestant catechisms. The Heidelberg Catechism in the 16th century is one marvelous such catechism. In question number 110, it asks, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer given is this. God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. So there are the obvious forms of stealing. You break into a house or a place or a place of business. You break into a car. You steal something from a store shelf. But in addition, there are the many less direct forms of stealing. Like walking out of a restaurant without paying. Accepting too much change from the cashier if anybody still uses cash. Swapping software or songs that are copyrighted and for which the creator is entitled to a remuneration. In fact, did you know the songs that we use on the screen on Sunday mornings are covered by a license for which we pay, and in turn, that compensates the composers. Otherwise, to use their music without paying for it would indeed be theft. 
Another form of stealing is failure to pay back money that's borrowed because it gives you property or services for which you did not pay and which, in fact, someone else is going to have to pay. There are many, many ways to steal. And so listing them all would take a very long time and it would probably be impossible anyway. But in your outline, I've given you four categories that cover many of them. And they'll at least give us the idea of what all's involved. First, there's cheating at work. Or cheating on our work. You see, an employment arrangement is really a contract between an employer and an employee in which each has agreed to perform his or her part of the contract. Jesus said this, the worker deserves his wages. So for an employer, if someone works for you, they're worthy to be paid in accordance with their work. But the opposite is also true. If we're getting paid to work, then we're obligated to do that work and do what your employer is paying you to do. A job not well done is theft. It's stealing from the employer. To work less than your shift while getting paid for the whole thing is theft. And we might say, well, they're not paying me enough, but that's not the issue since you agreed to work for that hourly wage or salary. And once you agree to work for a certain wage, you're to carry out your job at that wage. Another way to cheat on work is to fail to work at all, to refuse to look for a job so that, in effect, you're stealing from others who have to support you. We say to you, parents, if you have adult, able-bodied children, you should not be supporting them if they're not making every effort to support themselves. And some of you do that because you have a false definition of love for your children, which in fact is causing you to enable them to steal. Remember, love is doing what is in the best interest of another, and it is not in their best interest to allow them to mooch. Another work-related form of theft is taking stuff from the office or the factory that doesn't belong to you. So taking some office supplies, taking some tools from the tool crib, whatever it might be. Many ways to steal by cheating on work. Another way to steal in the outline is this, cheating on taxes. I saw a bumper sticker some years ago that said, don't steal the government hates competition. But much to our chagrin, and contrary to what some extreme right-wing people will tell you, taxes are actually legitimate biblically. I know a man who says he's a Christian, but who had been fooled by the false claims of those who say the 16th Amendment to our Constitution that gave the federal government the right to collect taxes is illegitimate, or was supposed to be temporary, so he said he no longer had to pay taxes. And he didn't for several years. His home was raided by federal agents, and he could have gone to prison. He spent years paying back those taxes that, according to him, he didn't owe. He would have been much better off had he just read the Bible. The Bible says in Romans 13, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes... Pay taxes. And Jesus had a famous encounter with his detractors as the religious leaders of his day sought to entrap him. 
They asked, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Luke says, Jesus saw through their duplicity. And he said to them, show me a denarius, a coin. And then he asked, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now, the Jewish leaders who asked this question were seeking to trap Jesus with either siding with the Romans and so alienating the pious people and zealots who opposed the foreign domination of Rome in the Holy Land. And by the way, Rome's taxes total over one-third of the average person's income, one-third, and included a poll tax, customs, and various indirect taxes. So if Jesus just says, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, he alienates one group of people. But if he says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, he pits himself against the government officials. Jesus said famously, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And Jesus here stated a principle. It was not an accommodation or a compromise. And that principle appears in the passage from Romans that was displayed just a bit ago that we're to pay our taxes to give what the government requires is not is not only not antithetical to religious duty it's actually part of our religious duty so friends if you've gotten involved with frankly just the crazy people who are spreading this nonsense that you don't have to pay taxes, the Bible says otherwise, and rethink that very quickly for your sake and for the reputation of Christ as well. Now, there are legitimate ways to lower one's tax liability. I'm not a financial planner, but I know at least that much. And even the IRS recognizes that it's legitimate to, quote, avoid as much tax as you can by structuring your finances to your benefit. But though there are legitimate avoidance measures, you cannot, quote, evade paying taxes. Tax evasion is a crime and it's a sin. There are honest and legal ways to lower one's tax liability, but it's stealing to to fail to pay the taxes that you owe. So the wrong ways to acquire possessions include cheating on work, cheating on taxes, also cheating in business. This would include dishonest business practices, telling people that they're getting something for their money when they really aren't. All kinds of examples could be given. I'll use a couple from the auto repair industry. (laughs) Some years ago, the Michigan legislature passed a law requiring auto repair facilities to return replaced parts to the customer if requested. Or, in the case of those parts that are too large or heavy, to at least allow the customer to see the old part. And that's because repair facilities could charge for replacement. And in some cases, many really, you wouldn't know whether they replaced it or not. The truth is, most of us are not going to get under the car to look. Or even know where to look on the engine. Or to take the wheels off to inspect the brake rotors. But unless you somehow marked your part before they removed it, even if they return it to you or allow you to inspect it, you don't know that that's actually your part. So maybe I'm just too cynical from reading the Bible about depravity and all of that. You know, when an oil change shop is putting oil in your car, you notice how they do that. They do, they have that hose, not from a container, so you're getting five quarts of of oil. 
And so I would love it if they had five containers that they opened and I watched them put that in. But instead, you got the, the hose they pull down. I'm not sure what it is that they're, they're pouring in. But they're, they've got this hose connected to some drum of oil that you can't see. And I'm wondering, is that new oil going in? Is that old oil? Is it a mix? Is it actually the kind of oil that I'm paying for? The truth is you don't know. You have to take their word for it. God says he hates dishonest business practices. In Proverbs chapter 20, the Lord detests differing weights and dishonest scales do not please him. Proverbs 11, the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Now, why this emphasis on weights and scales? It's because in biblical times, business transactions often involved weighing a product on scales using counterweights to determine the actual amount. And if those counterweights were labeled dishonestly, then the purchaser would be led to believe they were getting more than they actually received. There's an old story about two neighbors, a bank, a baker and a farmer. The baker began to be suspicious of the farmer, suspecting that he wasn't getting his money's worth when he paid for a pound of butter. He weighed the farmer's butter on several occasions and finally had him arrested for fraud. The judge asked the farmer at the trial, I presume you have scales? Yes, of course, Your Honor. And weights, the judge asked? No, replied the farmer, I don't have a set of weights. Well, then how do you hope to weigh accurately the butter you sell to your neighbor, the judge asked? That's easy, the farmer said. When the baker began to buy from me, I decided to buy my bread from him. And I've been using his one-pound loaves to balance my scales. If the weight of the butter's wrong, he has only himself to blame. Failing to fulfill a business agreement is another form of theft. When you agree to do something like pay back, alone. To do less than that is theft. So to use bankruptcy as a financial planning tool is stealing. You say, do anybody do that? Yeah, people do that. We can run up debt, and then after we've run up the debt, we can declare, we can declare bankruptcy. So people get in debt over their heads, but all the while know that they can just declare bankruptcy. But understand, that leaves someone, usually many someones, holding the bags, and someone's going to incur the loss by your failure to pay what you agreed to. And the truth is, theft costs all of us a sort of hidden tax. Since the cost of what is stolen or reneged on is passed on to all of us in the form of higher prices for goods and services. When you fail to pay... What you owe, you're stealing from the lender, but really you're stealing from all of us indirectly. Another way to steal in business is to withhold fair wages from employees. The Bible says this is a warning to greedy business owners. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, this passage is dealing with failing to pay at all. But other biblical principles would relate to paying a good and fair wage. Things like what we call the golden rule. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, In everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you. Well, this would mean paying your employees. 
hear this now, paying your employees as much as you can. While, of course, taking into consideration your costs in order to stay competitive and viable. So wrong ways to acquire possessions include cheating on work, taxes, cheating in business. Fourthly, cheating on God. We cannot fail to give back to God what's due him. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the people were condemned by God for not giving their tithes to him. In Malachi chapter 3, God says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me, says God. Now, most of you know that our church's policy is that the pastor does not know who gives what. I have never asked the finance team uh, to see any individual's giving, and if I did, they would rightly refuse. So I don't know how much or how little anyone gives in our church, and I'm glad we have that policy because when the subject of money comes up in the Bible, no one can legitimately say, I'm talking about them. I have no idea. So I don't know who gives what at our church, but I do know a couple of things about our congregation. One is this. As far as I know, we don't have any independently wealthy people. And two, we wouldn't be able to minister effectively unless many gave sacrificially. And I'm very thankful that they do. Now, some of you who are new in your walk with the Lord and have no idea what giving to God's work entails because you perhaps haven't heard uh, much about it. You certainly haven't heard much from me about it. Nevertheless, perhaps you've heard and shuddered at this tithe idea. So what is that? Well, it comes from the pattern set in the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament in passages like the one that was on the screen just a bit ago of giving a tithe or a tenth of one's income to the Lord. That was a law at the time a law that we're no longer under. But as a result of that pattern, many of us strive to give a tenth of our income to the Lord's work. And therefore, it's not uncommon for households, and I'll explain in a minute how I know this, but it's not uncommon for households to give $5,000, $7,000, $8,000 or more a year to the Lord's work. And I know this because though I've never seen and never will see who gives what, I can see figures with no names attached, and I've done that on only one occasion several years ago as we were planning to purchase this building and calculating the cost to renovate it. At that time, the finance team supplied me a list of figures representing annual household giving for the prior year from the largest down to the smallest. There were many figures in the thousands Undoubtedly due to what I said, many families sacrifice to give a tenth of their income and some, no doubt, do more. Now, I sometimes hear people in our church remark after they've attended one of our congregational meetings at which we present always a financial report from our finance team. And they'll remark on how amazed they are at the overall giving of our church. Well, again, I, too, am very thankful for what the Lord has done in and through all of you and your faithful giving. But perhaps it's not quite as per, 
impressive as it at first seems. You see, I don't believe I've ever commented on that list that I just mentioned to you that I was given several years ago, but here's the bad news. The good news is, as I said, many households giving sacrificially to the Lord's work. The bad news is that last, that list showed that about half of the households at that time gave nothing or next to nothing. Now, for some people, a little is all they can do, and that's all they should do. And if you're in that situation, do not feel bad that you cannot give more. That's not the point. The biblical principle is this, not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. And we are each to do what we can. Now, those numbers, if we were to run that now, and perhaps we will sometime soon to check, Those numbers may be different now, but the truth is it's not the case that about half of our congregation can give nothing or next to nothing. For some people that's true, but not for many. And the truth is we could do much more ministry with the additional resources that would come from some of us determining to set a giving goal, perhaps 10%, but some sacrificial goal and then faithfully giving toward it each year. The Bible says this in the New Testament, on the first day of every week, that is Sunday, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now, okay, I'm going to get off of that, but that's one wrong way to acquire possessions, namely to fail to give to the Lord and his work. Please understand that my saying this is not because I'll get anything personally out of it. I mean, let's suppose you all go home and you fall on your knees before the Lord and you say, okay, next week we're going to start giving. We're going to start giving more. That doesn't increase anything for me. I don't get paid like a percentage of what comes in or, or something like that. My salary is going to stay the same either way. And by the way, I'm very grateful for the church's generosity to me and my family. So it's not for my benefit, hear this, but really for yours. Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, said this, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Okay, done with that. You can now exhale. This is one reason, by the way, that we take the collection before the sermon. Because if I tick people off and we collect after, then we get nothing. So we collect it ahead of time. So there's the wrong way to acquire possessions. And then there is, in your outline, the right way. One preacher has noted that there are three ways to come into possession of property. One is by work, the second by a freely given gift, and the third is by theft. The first two of those are commanded and encouraged, and the last is the subject of the Eighth Commandment. So that's how one comes into possession of property. Either you earn it, it's given to you, or you take it. Many who are waiting for that ship to come in are doing so by lottery or by lawsuit, not by work. And much energy, as well as the limited resources that one might have for legal cost and the time put into it, they all go into trying to gain wealth outside of work. But by far and away, the most responsible and biblical way to acquire possessions is by working for them, not waiting for a gift or for your ship to come in. 
Work is the right way to acquire possessions, not get-rich-quick schemes. Not Ponzi schemes that make money off of friends and family. Euphemistically, sometimes called multi-level marketing. Let me just say, if you're into multi-level marketing of whatever type, I strongly discourage you from using your relationships in the church body in order to, in order to do that. We have a marketplace page on our website where we will put your business listed out there for you. And in the weekly email I send out, I'll call attention to it and say there's a business there. And if you're interested in that, then there's the information and contact that person. But I strongly discourage you from using your relationships in the, in the church body for multi-level marketing. The lottery itself can be that kind of diversion from the ordinary means of acquiring wealth, namely work for some, as it promises wealth quickly without having to work for it. Always remember this, friends. The lottery is a tax for people who are bad at math. We've had occasion to see a number of times in the last year or so, as we did our series in the opening chapters of Genesis and then recently in 1 Thessalonians and in looking at the fourth commandment regarding work in the Sabbath a few weeks ago and now today, we've been able to see in all of those, at all of those times that work is God's design for us. And that it's not, contrary to what some have taught, a result of the fall. As one has said, sin brought the toilsomeness, the tiresomeness, the death-bringing aspect of work. But work is part of God's original mandate for humanity. God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And contrary to the false notion that man has come from lower life forms... The original man had a tremendous intellect. Think about what God gave the first man and woman to do. Adam not only knew what each plant knew what each plant and everything in the garden needed, but he also knew how to cultivate, how to determine what tools were necessary, how to manufacture those tools, and to do all of that that was necessary. And Adam was someone who came from the hand of his creator. But in coming from the hand of his creator, he was given this honorable work to do. Work is a part of the original creation, and God has ordained that as the highest way for us to come into the possession of property. So I encourage you to lose the other ways that you're spending a lot of time banking on. And use the method that God has ordained. Ephesians chapter 4 says, He who has been stealing must steal no more, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So there are many wrong ways to acquire possessions. There's one primary right way to do so. And there is, lastly, in your outline, there is the reason to acquire possessions. Dr. Roland McCune, retired theology professor at Detroit Baptist Seminary, my alma mater, he had a number of helpful insights on the implications of this commandment. He said that the underlying assumption of you shall not steal is the right to private property. The only way that there can be a command against stealing what other people own is if people have the right to own private property. Without this, the commandment is meaningless. There must be a God-given right to ownership and possession of private property. 
some forms of economics notwithstanding that say the state owns and then the state distributes. Now, that's the basis, that is, the right to private property. But then he asks, what does that mean and how does that come about? And he offers three ways, or excuse me, two ways. First, God, of course, is the owner of everything. So underlying all of this about working and not stealing, underlying all of this is that God owns everything. The first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is full of that. And, in fact, the whole Bible is full of it. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So God is the absolute sovereign owner of the universe, and God's relationship to his universe falls under four headings. That God has planned the universe, which is his decree of predestination. Secondly, that God made it. That's the doctrine of creation. Thirdly, God upholds it or the doctrine of preservation. And then fourthly, God controls it and he brings it to its predetermined end. That's the doctrine of providence. God planned it. He made it. He upholds it. He controls it. God is absolutely in control. He's the owner of all. And so property rights are rooted in creation. They're not rooted in the state. They're not rooted even in redemption or not rooted in any particular covenant that God made with humanity, but they're rooted in the creation of all things by God. And even our founding fathers, who many of whom may well have been deists, but they at least captured the idea of this when in the Declaration of Independence they said that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution says, based on that, that no citizen shall be deprived of life, liberty, but then it says, or property, without due process of law. All of that is based on the truth that God is the owner of all. But secondly, humanity are to serve as stewards for God. God owns it all. We as humanity serve as stewards for God. And that too underlies this right to private property. God is the owner. Humanity are his stewards or managers. And that goes all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible in what's called the dominion mandate, where the first man and woman were told to, quote, subdue the earth. That strongly suggests that all of the rest of creation was designed to serve the interests of humanity who are in the image of God, both for the glory of God and for humanity to enjoy God's creation. So this universe is a gift from God to humanity to be held in trust as God's manager, as God's vice regents. Or as one author says of the original creation, humanity was, quote, king of the earth, serving as God's manager, his steward. And in that role, humanity was to subdue this earth, and that's part of the basis for private property. Humanity is to harness it, to utilize this earth, and by extension, the whole universe for humanity's good and God's glory. Humanity was to make the earth unlock its secrets and unlock its resources for the benefit of both God and man. Humanity is to be the servant of God, and the earth is to be the servant of humanity. The reason we acquire possessions then is because God is the owner of all of it. 
He put us in charge of all of it, and we're to acquire and use it for him and others. So, friends, we need to recognize that God holds, in the words of one, a first mortgage on everything. And humanity can possess property at God's pleasure and only at God's pleasure. Remember that God is the owner. And we're to possess and to work it on his behalf and acquire it by work, honest, disciplined work. To work in order to own requires discipline. Because what you own, you tend to look after with great care. Now, why does all of this matter? Well, keep in mind, friends, that all of this, like all of life, comes back to God. Remember that in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 20, we're now down in verse 15, you shall not steal, but going all the way back to verse 2 of Exodus chapter 20, just before giving the Ten Commandments, God reminds his people, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. And before giving these commands, God is reminding us of the context of all of these commands. Namely, that it's all ultimately about me, about God. And as you do this, you're remembering me. And as you do this, you're honoring me. You should do this because of me. So listen, friends, if we bear his name, then we must uphold his reputation in all of our dealings. And further, if we say we trust him, then that should be evident in how we approach the acquisition and the preservation of property. It is his to begin with, and he can distribute it as he sees fit. Hear this. To resort to dishonesty, to resort to stealing in any of its forms, is to say, I do not trust God to care for me. And he says, ultimately, this is all about me. So here's your take-home truth. We must respect private property By properly acquiring and preserving it, and I might add, for God's sake and our own good. Let's bow together. Our Father, again, we thank you for gathering us because it's only by your permission that we can do anything. You are the one who has given us life and breath and everything else. You've given us the health and the desire to be here. So thank you for gathering us. And thank you then for allowing us to look into your word and what your word says from a kind of panoramic view regarding this issue of your ownership and our stewardship and how if we really believe those and we practice those, then we will use the tool that you have given us, the primary means to acquire our possessions, namely work. We will not get distracted with get-rich-quick waiting for my ship to come in, and certainly not using dishonest means to acquire our possessions. Help me, O Lord, help us to remember that we're representing you in all of our dealings with others. May we then do what we've seen here today for your sake, first of all, for the sake of others, and for our own good as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.